The book of 2 Corinthians is a book about spiritual leadership. When you think of the pastoral epistles, you often think of Titus and 1 and 2 Timothy, but uh, I think 2 Corinthians is rightly called a pastoral epistle. It is written to describe pastoral ministry and what godly pastoral ministry looks like. And so you know, as we talk tonight, in the Bible, in the New Testament, the word pastor is synonymous with the word elder, is synonymous with the word bishop in the King James translation or overseer in the the ESV or the New American Standard. All three of those terms are interchangeable in the New Testament. All pastors are elders. All elders are are bishops or overseers. All overseers are pastors. In our American context, we often refer to pastors, at least in Emmanuel, as those that are are paid uh, and the elders are lay elders. But biblically, that's not a distinction. In the Bible, every elder is a pastor. Every pastor is an elder. There's qualifications for them in 1 Timothy 3. Uh, It's not something that is on the the pay scale. It's not something that's in the HR department. It's something that comes from the pen of the Apostle Paul in describing to churches how they're supposed to be built into structure. 2 Corinthians 11, chapter 2, Paul describes pastoral leadership as spiritual leadership. In fact, there, we're going to look tonight at chapter 1, verses 24, or 23 and 24. But back in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2, Paul says that pastoral ministry is being filled with a divine jealousy for the church. In fact, he says to the Corinthians, I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. That was his, his goal. And that as an elder, he's laboring in the church to guard the church and present her as a virgin for her marriage. That's the image he uses for pastoral ministry. The takeaway from that is that God loves his church like a father loves his daughter. God loves his church like someone who cares. And you you bring in the image from Ephesians chapter 5 that the husbands labor uh, to care for their wives, to present them spotless and blameless before Christ. This is the image, as Paul's writing husbands in Ephesians 5, that's the image he takes to write to the Corinthians about what eldering should be like in the church. God loves his people, of course, and as a token of his love for his people, he gives them elders. So elders need to take their job seriously by recognizing that their job is an expression of the love of God. We've been talking a lot recently about the difference between Christian churches and, and um, you know, the outside world. You know, there's nothing like what's happening in this room right now going on in the outside world. The outside world doesn't have a concept for, you know, a book that was written thousands of years ago and you're going to gather around and somebody's going to open it and teach it. And that's what the magnetism that draws us here is the, the truth from God's word. The outside world doesn't understand this concept of Christian singing and rejoicing. There's nothing like that in the world closest you get is the air ball chant at basketball games. (laughs) But there's this truth that binds hearts together that you see expressed in this room. And another element of that is the concept of spiritual leadership as God gives it to the church. Again, there are other religions in the world, but none of them with a book like this, none of them with songs like this. I mean, imagine another context where the, the worship leader pulls the car over, so to speak, singing and says, hey, we're singing about joy and you can't just phone this in. (laughs) You have to actually be joyful. 
And there's no other concept in the world where there's this kind of spiritual leadership where the sovereign God of the universe designates certain men in the church to care for the souls in the church in a spiritual way that is for their good as an expression of his love. When you look at how other, other religions, of course, have leaders, they have those with authority, but the authority consists, in a sense, to propagate the truth and to, to to prop them up. It's not a servant kind of leadership at all like you see in the church. In fact, this leads to the most common biblical analogy towards being an elder. It's not even leading. The most common biblical analogy for an elder is that of a shepherd. Is that of a shepherd? And this is not specifically New Testament, it's Old Testament as well. The most well-known passage about this would be Psalm 23, uh, a psalm that most of you have memorized, especially the the kids who finished Awana this year. I think they memorized that in every stage in Awana. (laughs) Where the Lord is our shepherd. And because God is our shepherd, think about what the the psalm goes on to say. We will will not be in want. We won't have needs for things because God loves us enough. He gives us what we need. We will not be in danger because God loves us enough. He protects us. It doesn't mean there won't be dangers out there. It means that those dangers won't uh, assail over us, that they won't have victory over us because we have confidence in our shepherd. And it's, it's not purely goodness and mercy and the table. There's also the staff and the rod. There's protection. There's correction. So God loves us enough to care for our souls, to feed us spiritually, but also to correct us and bring us back into the pen, so to speak. This is the model that's overarching in Scripture for what the work of an elder is. God declares himself to be the true shepherd in Psalm 23. And of course, Jesus takes that, that mantle. Earlier in John's gospel, uh, the Jews were going to put Jesus' death because they said, you being man, always keep making yourself out to be equal with God. And, and there are those skeptics around today that say, where did Jesus say he was God? I, you know, concordance, Jesus says he's God, it comes up empty. <laughs> but the Jews heard it. They picked up rocks to stone him when he said before Abraham was, I am, for one example. And another example is where he declares himself to be in John 10, the good shepherd. Not an illusion that would be lost on the Israelites who also had memorized Psalm 23 in their Awana. <laughs> and so here's Jesus and he steps on the scene and he declares himself to be the shepherd. David's son and David's Lord. And he goes on to say in John 10 verse 11, uh, John 10 verse 11 that whole section goes down to verse 18, that not only is he the shepherd, but he will lay his life down for the sheep to demonstrate. And that's how you know this is God shepherding his people because he will give himself sacrificially. In fact, he even says that he's a shepherd so much so that his sheep will know his voice. We Christians call themselves sheep, not because it's a particularly flattering metaphor, <laughs> We call ourselves sheep because it's a way of confessing that Jesus is our shepherd. Jesus is our shepherd. But Jesus does not shepherd us directly. He raises up in the church what Paul calls under shepherds in one place. Another place he calls them under rowers, the, the galley slaves, you know, in the, the Roman boats, there would be the captain up on top and there's the, those that are the slaves in the bottom just rowing. That's the, another analogy Paul uses to the Corinthians for pastoral ministry, just under rowers. But his most common one, of course, is shepherding. We have a delegated shepherding authority. And it's a, it's a tough metaphor to thread here because on the one hand, you don't want to say that 
the Christian church is led by elders who are for hire, like the hirelings, because Jesus says the hirelings aren't going to lay their life down for the sheep, right? If you're paid minimum wage, you know, picture a, a bank robbery at a McDonald's, you know, is this going to put up a fight? <laughs> like, they're not paid for this. Take the money. And here's some fries, too. So part of the analogy, Jesus says that the, the, the hireling won't defend the sheep. The wolf comes, the hireling's out. And so as elders in the church, we're not hirelings. We're not in it for the money. We're not paid for it. But there's that protective element that is still delegated, that we're here watching somebody else's sheep. Godly elders understand that the sheep in the church are in a limited sense. They're sheep of very limited sense. There's lots of churches in the world and sheep move from one church to the other and you don't, have a, you don't brand sheep, you know? Our membership process isn't that complex. <laughs> but for the sheep that are here, that are members of the church, the elders then have a delegated spiritual authority over them. Were they, to use the word, shepherd them? How do they do that? Well, they, if you look at all the things described in First and Second Corinthians, they preach to them, they disciple them, they lead them, they appoint deacons, they baptize them, they lead communion. In short, they shepherd them. And what this means is that as under shepherds, we follow the example of Christ, how he shepherded. We care for people as Christ does. We don't live in any way that tries to replace Christ as shepherd in people's lives. Rather, in our shepherding, we try to direct people to Christ. In this passage, we're going to look at just two verses tonight, the last two verses of 2 Corinthians 1. Paul writes, I call God to witness against me, which is a, a dangerous thing to say if you're not telling the truth. <laughs> it was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in the faith. This passage reveals the true heart of a shepherd. I'll give you an outline real quick. It won't be on the screen. Let me just read off to you. There's, there's three descriptions of eldering or three descriptions of shepherding in this. Shepherding and eldering it's, is not leverage. It is labor and it is a labor for joy. It's not leverage. It is labor and it is a labor for, for joy or labor for love if you want all else. But it goes with joy here at the, at the end. It's not about leverage. It is a labor, and it's a labor for joy. And let's look at these one at a time. Verse 23, Paul says, I call God to witness against me. It was a spare you that I refrained from coming in as Corinth. You remember the dynamic that began 2 Corinthians 1. We uh, uh, have talked about it many times. It was this idea that Paul had told the Corinthians he's on his way there. He tells them back in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, get your house in order. I'm on the way. And in fact, he tells them, I'll even bring a whip with me. So you better get ready. That's the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And they do not get ready for him. They dodge him. They ignore his, his admonition. And so Paul finds himself on this the cusp of a decision here. Should he go to Corinth and rebuke them in their sin or should he change his plans? And he decides to change his plans. Even though he had said he was going to go, he decides not to go. And he begins 2 Corinthians chapter 1 by trying to explain that decision. And he spends many verses saying that he's not a liar in this. In fact, in verse eight, uh, 17, he says, I wasn't vacillating when I said I wanted to do this. I don't make plans according to my flesh and say yes, yes, and no, no. At the same time, as God is faithful, I'm keeping my word. 
He's appealing to the integrity of God because remember on the outside it looks like he said he was going but on the inside he, he didn't go. And so what he's saying here is that it's always been the same thing. He wanted to go to them to help them and then he realized that going to them would not ultimately help them yet. They weren't ready to receive him. Meanwhile, there's all these false leaders, these false apostles, these, uh, the new elders of the Corinthian church that have taken over since Paul left are leading the church into sin. They're eldering for their own privilege, their own leverage, their own social status, their own money. They're, I mean, they are, are violating the church in countless ways as they're leading them into sin. And so Paul is, is telling the Corinthians, he's trying to thread the needle here by saying the elders you have, you don't listen to them, especially as they reject my authority. You need to listen to God's truth and remember the gospel. But he can't do that without puffing himself up, without saying, you know, I'm the standard for elders. It's very easy to come across that way. And so he doesn't want to do that. And so he just delays coming until he's able to thread that needle exactly. And that's why he says in verse 23, I want God to witness against me. In other words, implied if I'm not telling the truth that I didn't come to you because I wanted to spare you. Well, spare them from what? Paul did not have legal authority. He couldn't come and arrest them. (laughs) He didn't have the power to imprison them. He couldn't tax them. In fact, he likely couldn't even effectively church discipline them because the elders wouldn't go along with his attempt to discipline them. And so what exactly is he saying that he wants to spare them from by not showing up? And there's a lot of answers to this. He doesn't want to embarrass them, I think, is the main one. He doesn't want to come in and their sin would be so evident that they would be, in a sense, humiliated, that they would have, they'd be forced to choose. Do we really love Paul or not? Do we love Paul more than our sin or our sin more than Paul? And this, would, this could go bad. This could be embarrassing to them. It could be embarrassing to Paul. There's limits to this patience though because if they're living in sin the rest of their lives, this is, it means the gospel didn't take root there. And so this is, explains Paul's hesitation. Notice the contrast that he's not coming there to serve them But think about how the false elders, the the false apostles, how, let's put this, use this phrase for the rest of the evening, how the bad elders would have done it. The bad elders would have rolled in with trumpets. The bad elders would have had the word elder tattooed in their forehead. Maybe not literally, but they definitely would have drawn attention to themselves as elders. They would have wanted people to listen to them. Hey, where's my elder parking spot? (laughs) They didn't have cars back then, but you get the idea. What's in it for me? Where's my elder seat? I would like it to be up front, preferably. How do people recognize that I, in fact, am an elder in this church as I carry about? The, and, and the main way these, these so-called elders did it is by exasperating the congregation, by making uh, commands on their lives that aren't biblical, by going, as Paul tells the Corinthians, they're going beyond what's written. They're, there's the commands in the Bible, and these, these false elders go beyond that to burden people. It's like the Pharisees did. Remember, the Pharisees invented new rules to get people to follow. You know, bad elders you find not just in Christianity, but in every religion. <laughs> and that was the mark of Judaism of Paul's, Paul's day. And that's why Paul says, we don't lord this over you. Look at the phrase in verse 24. We do not lord 
it over your faith. Paul says, I do not do anything that elevates me above your faith. I'm not exercising undue influence on you. I'm not trying to corral you in a certain way that's not biblical. I'm not lording it over you. And this is a, a phrase that, that Tyndale invented and it remains in our English Bibles to this day. It's become an expression to lord it over someone. And what a great turn of phrase. <laughs> to lord it over someone. To just... Act like you have the authority to command them as your subject. And, and again, that's easy to do in the church because there is a spiritual authority that comes with, with being an elder. There is a, the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3, the public examination, the installation of them as elders. And so there's the capacity to lord it over the congregation. And that's what bad elders do. And Paul, who's been being accused of being a bad elder, is now telling them, I did not lord it over your faith and I'm not doing it now. He's even being careful as he says, I'm not, I don't want to embarrass you. But even in saying that, do you see how that could almost be lording it over their faith? Like if you don't act this way, that could embarrass you and I don't want to embarrass you. So Paul says, just in telling them, I had to keep away for a time being. I, but even in that, I'm not trying to lord it over your faith. Bad elders create division for their own leverage. They love to create division. Bad elders will, will divide and say that group over there is bad. This is the right group, specifically my group, especially in the church. That kind of division is, is inevitable in the world. We have lots of denominations in the world. Denominations aren't the same. Churches aren't the same. There's differences between churches and those differences are part of the freedom we have in Christ to, to design churches according to the wisdom of the elders. I mean, that's not division. People say, oh, it agrees with me. There's so many churches in the world because that shows the body of Christ is divided. No, you... No, the opposite is true. Uh, if there weren't so many churches in the world, the body of Christ would be divided. <laughs> but the fact that we have freedom and some big things to make different churches, that's good. It's inside of the church where some elders start to create division by, by, by fomenting divisiveness in the church. And that's what's happening in Corinth, where they're saying, oh, look at Paul. You don't want to, I know he's gone now, but don't listen to what he did when he was here. It was bad. And it's a way of elevating the new elders over the ones that had left. They mocked Paul's gifts. They mocked what he did for the purpose of their own reputation. That's why in 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen, Paul calls them false apostles. <laughs> because they, and this is the phrase in 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen. He says, they're false apostles because they boasted in their mission. Think about that phrase. You know those elders were false because they were boasting about their role in the church. And that's a sober takeaway from you. It should be, especially for elders in the room. If you boast about your position as an elder, Paul labels them false apostles. It's the deceit and cunning that brings about an adverse reaction to suffering. These false elders, Paul points out later in 2 Corinthians, they would never suffer willingly for the gospel. That's another telltale sign of a false uh, of a false elder, of a bad elder. He wouldn't suffer for the gospel himself. He wouldn't live sacrificially for the, for the church or for the sake of evangelism himself. He has no problem telling other people to do it, but he would never do it himself. First Peter warns against those people. First Peter 5 verse 2 is a command, shepherd God's flock among you, not overseeing it out of compulsion, but freely according to God's will, not for money, but eagerly. And then the same phrase you see here. 1 Peter 5, 3, not lording it over those entrusted to you. Peter warns elders not to lord it over their flock. And one way you do it is you're in it for the money. And here Paul warns as well. I want you to turn 
It's not a New Testament phenomenon. I want you to see it in the Old Testament. So keep your finger there in 1 Corinthians 1. But, but go back. We're going to spend a few, a few minutes here, much of the rest of our time here, back to Ezekiel chapter 34. This is one of the clearest examples of the, uh, the bad elders back in Old Testament Israel, Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel 34, the word of Yahweh came to me, son of man, a, a common phrase used in Ezekiel for, for Ezekiel. Prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord Yahweh, ah, shepherds of Israel who've been feeding yourselves. Shouldn't shepherds feed the sheep? There's this evident question. This is the Old Testament. There's no church yet. This is an Old Testament principle to the leaders of Israel. Even in the Old Testament Israel, the Israelites were compared to sheep. And God asks them sarcastically, these shepherds, the leaders of Israel, hey, she, hey shepherds, are you in this for yourself or for the sheep? That's your basic question. It's a New Testament question as well for elders. Do you want to be in this for the sake of the sheep or for the sake of yourself? You eat the fat, verse 3. You clothe yourself with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you don't feed the sheep. These shepherds aren't about feeding the sheep and making the fat ones. They're about finding the fat ones, which a sheep is a good thing, by the way. <laughs> They're about finding the fat ones, shearing them, and then slaughtering them. Again, these elders wouldn't work to make the sheep fat. They wouldn't work to grow the sheep, but they would just work to eat them. The weak, verse 4, you haven't strengthened. The sick, you haven't healed. The injured, you haven't bound up. The strayed, you haven't brought back. The lost, you haven't sought. With force or harshness, you've ruled them. Again, another mark of a bad elder or a bad pastor is ruling with force or harshness. In fact, in 1 Timothy 3, that is a disqualifying character trait. Verse 5, so the sheep were scattered, of course, because there was no shepherd. They became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep, this is Yahweh God speaking, my sheep were scattered. They wandered all over the mountains on an every high hill. My sheep were scattered over the face of the earth with no one to search them or seek for them. Therefore, shepherds, hear the word of God. As I live, declares the Lord Yahweh, surely because my sheep have become prey, my sheep have become food for the wild beasts, since there was no shepherd, and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of Yahweh. Thus says the Lord Yahweh, behold, I'm against the shepherds. I will require my sheep at their hand. This is imagery that's used at the end of Hebrews 13. The elders will give an account for the sheep under their, their watch. I will put a stop to their feeding in the sheep. No longer will the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. For thus says the Lord Yahweh, behold, I myself will search for my sheep. I will seek them out. In other words, I've given up on Israel. The Levites are no longer the shepherds. I will send my own shepherd. And of course, we understand in the New Testament the significance in John 10 that Jesus is the fulfillment. Verse 12, as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he's among his sheep that have been scattered, I will seek out my sheep. I will rescue them from all places where they've been scattered on the day of clouds and of thick darkness. I will bring them out from the peoples. There's an image at the end of Romans 9 that God is going to create sheep from all over the world, not just from the Jews. I will gather them from the countries. I will bring them into their own lands. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture. You can turn back to 2 Corinthians now. The mark of a bad pastor or a bad elder is that he's in it for himself and he's in it for gain. The mark of a godly pastor and a godly elder is that he's in it for the sheep 
This is why 1 Corinthians 4.21, Paul says, I don't want to come to you because I would have to bring a whip. He, doesn't, he knows the godly elders want to correct sin, but he doesn't want to do it in a way that harms. So first, being an elder or shepherd, it's not about leverage, but second, it is a labor of love. It's not about leverage, but it is a labor, specifically a labor of love here. Paul tells Timothy, 1 Timothy 3.1, if someone aspires to the office of a bishop or elder or overseer, the rest of the verse, it is a noble what? Do you remember? Noble work. If someone wants the office of an overseer, it's a noble work he aspires to. That it's a job. It's the effort of being an elder. Being an elder is not a position. It's a labor. You know, there's a concept that I think is right and biblical that when we recognize elders at Emmanuel, we don't re-recognize them every year. We recognize an elder basically for life until they step away from the elder board, uh, retire or serve for a while and want to focus on something else or, or disqualify themselves. But there's not this constant uh, re-recognition and we recognize elders, elders for life, of course. And I think that, that's right. But understand this key point that just because an elder is recognized for life doesn't mean he's always doing the work. And at the point he stops doing the work, he doesn't remain an elder because he was recognized. Eldering is about doing the work of eldering. In a sense, it doesn't matter what the name on the, the door is or what the label on the church flowchart is or, you know, what matters is the work that's being done. That's what Jesus means in Matthew 20, verse 25, where he says, Jesus called them over and said, you know the rulers of the Gentiles dominate them. The men of high position have power over them. It must not be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. You want to be great in the church? You become a servant in the church. And that's true for elders as well. That's why Paul calls it a labor. Look at verse 24 again. We work with you for your joy. We put the effort in. That that Greek word there implies effort, energy is exerted. It's a labor. It's a task. It doesn't imply pay like it might in English. It's more like working in your yard rather than going to work. It's this idea that energy is exerted. It's a labor. And he, Paul describes this elsewhere in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 29. He says it's sleepless nights. And he says specifically the labor part is dealing with sin in the church. Who's weak and I'm not weak, Paul asks. Who's suffering and I don't suffer. Who's made to fall and I'm not indignant. In other words, when sin hits the church and somebody falls into sin, it makes the elders upset because they see the sheep die. That's back to the image in Psalm 23 where the shepherd protects his sheep. Shepherd protects his sheep by being near them, by knowing them, knowing their difficulties, knowing their challenges, knowing their temptations, knowing how to care for them, knowing the food they need, and doing it. And that's all background for John 15 verse 13 where Jesus says because he's a good shepherd, he will lay his life down for his sheep. That's the point of shepherding. It's work. It's labor. It's the work of discipleship. It's the work of growing up, causing people to grow in spiritual maturity. How does that labor work? Well, it works by, you think of the analogy of a shepherd. It works by how, uh, shepherds know their sheep. They have relationships with them. They know Strengths and weaknesses, of course, they know what they need, but then they know where the danger is and they know how to guide them. And here's a key part of being a shepherd. You have to have the destination in mind and the destination in the Bible is given to us. It's spiritual maturity. 
It's Ephesians 4, verse 11. There Paul says that God gave pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry to build up the body of Christ so we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by the winds of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. In other words, you're laboring to grow. You're laboring to build. You're not resting. Eldering is not a resting position. You know, think about this. You go home and you rest. I have a hammock in my backyard. Two trees connect it. And I haven't actually done this yet, but I would love to one day. Is sit in the hammock with lemonade and a book. I think that would be wonderful. I have this, this vision. I think my kids might need to be older. Specifically, my youngest kid might need to be older to understand that I'm sitting there reading and drinking lemonade and not, you know, doing other things, rescuing her from the creek or something like that. So I'm not quite at that stage of life yet, but imagine with me, I get to sit in the hammock and sip the lemonade and read the book. I'm resting, but think of the work that went into that rest. Somebody had to plant those trees and water them and grow them and keep the creek from taking them away, which is a significant amount of work. (laughs) Somebody had to plant other trees and water them and grow them to the point where they could produce lemons and other plants and grow them and get sugar and make the lemonade. And somebody had to write the book and then I had to buy the book and then I had to get a Kindle that worked and all this stuff had to happen (laughs) for me to be able to actually sit there and read. That's a lot of work to rest right there. (laughs) This is the image in the church. The goal is to bring Christians to a place of spiritual rest and spiritual maturity, but there is labor that goes into it. But this is what we're working for. Thirdly, it is a labor for joy. Eldering is not about leverage. It is about laboring. And thirdly, it's a labor for joy. There's a joyful maturity that we're after. Notice what Paul says in verse 24. We work with you for your joy. That's the product and it's not just joy like in joy in the world, like, you know, to help you get a new car so you're happy or a better house so you're happy or, you know, better behaved kids. I mean, that's moralism. You want to be happy in your marriage, you can teach you how to, how to communicate better in your marriage, teach you how to parent better with your kids. And, you know, you got this difficulty with your kids and we can help you fix that. I mean, that's, that's true. There's wisdom principles and how to parent and how to communicate and all that that the church does teach. But that's not the product because that's the kind of joy you can get in the world. I heard an advertisement on Christian uh, radio on, on Friday. That I heard this advertisement for, from this uh, psychologist who said, we took this curriculum that was that is used in the world and we put Bible verses to it. And you call in now and you get a free one, <laughs> a free copy of this, this book. I won't even tell you what the topic was. <laughs> I couldn't believe it was on Christian radio. Uh, it's a secular material with Bible verses at the end. That's, and, and that can bring you, I'm sure it can bring you joy if you do it. I'm sure it'll help your communication and help your family and all that. I'm sure it can bring you joy. But that's not the kind of joy that the church is after. Look at verse 24. Your joy comes when you stand firm in your faith. I love this is in 2 Corinthians 1 because it's conditional. Remember the verse we read earlier today, uh, chapter 13, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. That brackets the book. It starts with stand firm. Your joy is if you stand firm in the faith. And the book ends with look in the mirror of God's word and see if you're even in the faith to begin with. And the middle of Corinthians explains how that happens. You have spiritual joy when you are standing in the faith. Your faith, you own it. It's your personal faith. It's given to you by God. It's not your neighbor's faith or your parents' faith. It's your faith. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 3, Paul says, I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. 
For I felt sure for all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. Paul says, I wrote to you wanting this joy to be contagious. I love what DC said earlier singing because it is true. Elders, a qualification for elders, it's not in 1 Timothy 3 exactly, but you see it here. Elders should have joy in the faith. You can't give what you don't have. And if the goal of an elder is to give joy and you don't have joy, then you can't be an elder. There's a stereotype of the church curmudgeon. The hat down low and the wrinkled nose and the wagging finger. You know the stereotype? That person may exist. I haven't met somebody exactly like that at Emmanuel, but he may exist. <laughs> I'm sure other churches have the church curmudgeon and, and they may have him. But listen, he's not an elder. At least he ought not be because elders should be marked by joy. If you don't have joy in the Lord, then you can't be an elder. And that's because Christians should have joy in the Lord. And that's what Paul's saying here. It's for your joy. He wants, in 2 Corinthians 2 verse 4, he wants his joy to be their joy. It should be contagious. It's regonomics applied to eldering. <laughs> the only church I can think of in the world I've ever preached that would get that joke. <laughs> eldering is not about being right. It's about giving joy. It's about giving joy. Because joy is a product of spiritual maturity. There has to be a positive direction in the church for a church to be marked by joy. If joy is lacking in a church, like it was here in the Corinthians, then it's possible the gospel's never taken root there. A mark of a gospel church is a joyful church. It was Calvin who wrote, quote, in order to produce joy in the church, there's this settled principle that pastors have no special lordship over men's consciences because they're only ministers and helpers, not lords. And so what you get from that principle there is that a church where the elders lord it over people or exalt themselves is not going to be a joyful church. But in a church where the elders have joy, you'll likely find a congregation with joy. That's why Paul says, I want you to stand in your faith with joy. Following Christ is not gritting your teeth and bearing it. It's not digging your heels in and just saying, I don't want to do this, but I know it's right. I mean, that's not following Christ. Following Christ is digging your feet in. It is standing firm in the faith with joy in your heart. The goal of elders as a church is to help members of the church declare the truth of Psalm 43, verse 4. I will go to the altar of God, to the God of my exceeding joy. Sometimes this includes the rooting out of sin, the exposing of idols, the warning of doctrines that deceive, but the goal is from a heart that loves Christ to create a church that proclaims Christ and a congregation that enjoys Christ. It's my prayer that this church would be marked by a contagious joy because we stand firm in the faith. And that's a good transition to recognizing Nigel and Jim Klingon Peel's elders, because if you know them, you know that they are men and their wives and their families and Jim's girls and Nigel's brood. You know that they are a family that is marked by joy. <laughs> uh, Klingon Peel's being a family marked by singing joy. Um, and uh, just if you're around these families, you see the joy that they have and it becomes contagious. It becomes contagious. There's all kinds of other things that go into eldering, serving in the church, as both Jim and Nigel do in so many different ways. Uh, leading in the church, which they do. Shepherding in the church, which they both do. Um, it seems obvious this is what, 
we should do is recognize them as elders. So let me pray for them before Rob comes back up to do that. Lord, we're thankful for the truth that's in your word. And that would be our prayer that we can stand firm with joy. We see the immature of the world tossed to and fro by waves and winds of doctrine and passing fads. We see other churches where the pastors and elders differentiate themselves. They create distinctions where there are none. They elevate themselves. They, um, they act. They put on airs, Paul says to the Corinthians. And I pray that wouldn't be true here with us. We're thankful that you have spared the church in so many ways from that. We're grateful to see your favor on this church. Um, this is indeed a blessed church, Lord, because there is joy here. There are godly elders here that serve you faithfully. We're thankful. We, we know that this is one of the main gifts you've given us, and we don't take it for granted, Lord. So we give you thanks for that this evening. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. You have been listening to Emmanuel with Pastor Jesse Johnson. You can find more resources like this at ibcva.com. Here is a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, ibcva.com. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. We're located in Northern Virginia, and for more information about when and where we worship, check out our church website. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.